Uh, again, thank you for joining us, uh, especially if you're a first-timer here, and just um, glad you're here to worship with us. And to sort of mention during the sermon, or I'm sorry, during the worship time, we think about love these days. And um, for me, it's just been a personal blessing to be a father, to be able to love, uh, just experience love in a different way, to love my son and daughter. And just, I was thinking about that today and just thinking about how there are many labels for fathers these days. Some are bad, like they're called absentee father, putative father, just more of a legal term there. And then there are good ones, um, besides just being a normal father, there's the adoptive father, foster father, father figures, hopefully benefited from them. And here's another category called an engaged father. An engaged father, according to one article, consists of the following traits, feels responsible for and behaves responsibly toward his child, is emotionally engaged, is physically accessible, provides material support to sustain the child's needs. As a parenthesis, this used to be the sole focus of the government intervention, is involved in child care, exerts influence in child-rearing decisions. So it just seems like, in short, an engaged father is what a normal father should be. It's interesting that even the world recognizes how important that is in children's lives. Research backs up their conclusion. Fatherless children are more likely to suffer from mental health issues and poor academic performance, live in poverty, and be involved in criminal activities. I think we Christians would agree that a father's involvement is key, very important in a child's development. Now, I tend to think that there's some parallel in our spiritual lives as well. We need fatherly figures in our churches. They help us grow spiritually. Through godly role models, we learn how to prosper in our souls. Rightly divide the word of truth. Be rich toward God. Fulfill the law of Christ. All kinds of spiritual benefits that we learn through discipleship. And there are many other benefits that come from what I would like to say, engaged spiritual fatherhood. So today I wanted us to look at an example of such spiritual fatherhood in Paul the Apostle. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. 14 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, just feel free to take one of the pew Bibles in front of you or near you. And if you don't have one, a Bible at home, just take one as a gift from us to you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 to 21. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power 
For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So back in chapter 3, as we're going through this letter, I described Paul's role as a founding farmer. It combined two images, an industrious planter of the seed, and two, second one was the wise master builder, laying, laying the foundation. In today's passage, I see Paul as the founding father. We leave the field, we depart from the work site for the commute home, we go from the agricultural, architectural, to the parental, familial. In this household of faith, Paul's the dad, the Corinthians are his wayward children, and Timothy's his reliable son. And as we look at just the, the apostle as a paternal figure, I observe here three fatherly counsel for spiritual maturity. You could narrow them down to three words, all starting with the letter I. You could say it's just injunction, imitation, and inspection. But to be clear, her lengthier, more substantial statement of the councils. One, heed the fatherly warnings to reinforce gospel basics. Right. Heed the fatherly warnings to reinforce gospel basics. That's verses 14 to 15. And I'll repeat these points later. Two, observe carefully commendable real-life godliness. So observe carefully commendable real-life godliness. That's verses 16 to 17. Three, receive humbly those who represent God's authority. You know, receive humbly those who represent God's authority. That's verses 18 to 21. So the first of Paul's counsel is an injunction. Heed the fatherly warnings to reinforce gospel basics. Just as we did with verse 6 last time, the first task in interpreting verse 14 is this. Figure out what Paul means by these things. We don't have to rewind long. Simply review verses 6 to 13. Even a quick scan will remind you that Paul's heated. He's hot and he's bothered as he has to reinforce the basics of the gospel. We're talking about basic truths like grace is undeserved. Don't boast in yourself. The Christian life's difficult. These are things they should know already. He's asking rhetorical questions, shouting satirical interjections, emotions jump out of the pages. And so how you read Paul's words, not just their meaning, is key to understanding his heart. If you didn't know any better, if you doubt the apostle's character or misjudge him, dare I say Paul's patriarchal approach will sound patronizing, right? So now any good dad understands this risk. 
just he's self-aware. So if he's lecturing his sons or daughters too harshly, he might pause to remind them of his love. Paul would be a hypocrite if he didn't do the same. Elsewhere, he teaches that a godly father will bring children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, but he does so without provoking them to wrath, without discouraging them. See that in Ephesians and Colossians, right? There are other key passages to consider about fatherhood, as Elder Carey read earlier, a father corrects a son in whom he delights. So often the ways of our earthly fathers help us understand our heavenly father. I think it also helps us understand our spiritual fathers, right? So it's imperative that the Corinthians grasp Paul's loving intentions behind what may sound like rough words. So since he packed verses 6 to 13 with plenty of emotional tension, it's time he releases that tension in verses 14 to 15. It's time for sort of a warm hug after some verbal berating. So here's how that warm hug looks, feels, and sounds. I've been using fake names, but hey, Corey or Corrine, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I want only what's best for you. You're my beloved children. In the school of the Christian life, you'll encounter many instructors who will help you mature. You might be more impressed with them than your old man. But remember, I was the one who first preached you the gospel. The message of the cross. Christ and him crucified. I was there the moment you believed and you were reborn. I saw you take those first steps of walking in faith. Perhaps we look at such father figures and think we've outgrown them and the gospel basics. We may find them irrelevant because I'm so big and strong now in my Christian walk. We'd rather not be addressed as children, little boys and little girls. But there are times when, let's face it, we act like the Corinthians. We act immature. We're like the carnal babes of Christ, and we don't even know it. We choke on solid food, and we have to go back to milk. Then you understand why we need to have someone address us as Paul did, the Corinthians. So consider how we can heed the fatherly warnings to reinforce gospel basics. Think about that principle. Now I'm going to stop here for two quick applications. This is more for parents. Um, If God made you a parent physically, pray that God will make you a spiritual parent too. My wife and I, as I mentioned, are already privileged to have two kids. What a privilege it would be to become their spiritual parents too. Of course, God may use others for that purpose, and I'll be okay with that. But what a gift it would be to be able to say to my children, in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Secondly, if you're already a spiritual parent, and you don't have to be a physical parent to be a spiritual parent, right? Uh, Fulfill your duty. Now, God may not use you to single-handedly found the entire church as Paul did. That's a pretty amazing feat there, but you may recall some individuals that led you to Christ. I mean, I'm sorry, that you led to Christ. Maybe you're a teacher or um, 
maybe you're playing the role of the uncle or aunt. Or, but do you remember their names? The ones that you led to Christ. Do you know where they are now? Are they growing spiritually under the care of godly instructors at a healthy local church? Perhaps it's going to be difficult to reestablish contact. Just start by praying for them. Then if you have their emails or numbers, write, text, or call them. If they're doing well, that's great. If they're growing in their faith. If not, remind them of the gospel. In all these efforts, every spiritual parent must be clear on the basics of the gospel. You know, a few years ago, our friends, some of, our, some of our friends got us a book entitled The Gospel. Right? It's written by Devon Provencher and illustrated by his wife, Jessica, for their children and for ours. It's part of a series entitled Big Theology for Little Hearts. And I try to read it to Nathaniel regularly, and hopefully I'll read it to Annette later too. It's not long, so I'll just share it with you. Um, so maybe I'll make you feel like a child right now. <laughs> right? So it says, God, God created all things and all people. Man, humans were created special in the very image of God. Rebellion, all people have chosen in their hearts to disobey God and have rejected him as king. Punishment, those who sin must be punished because sin is breaking God's law. Jesus, God sent his own son into the world to rescue people from their sin because they couldn't save themselves. Perfect man. Jesus is the perfect man who obeyed God fully his whole life. Sacrifice. Jesus was put to death, taking on himself the punishment that God's people deserved. Resurrection, destroying death once and for all. Jesus came back to life three days later. Response, God commands all people everywhere to turn their back on sin and believe in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sin. Eternal life, never-ending life with God is given to all who place their faith in Jesus. Simple message of the gospel. It's a message so simple that a child can understand. Yet even as we mature, even if we've been saved for decades, It's never a waste of time to revisit and review the basics. So I'm no chemist, but I've read that water, one of the simplest chemical compounds, is by far the most studied of the compounds. It's pretty obvious why, right? We need it for life. It's everywhere. It's dynamic. We can dive into its profound mystery, literally as deep as the oceans. Or we can look at it at a molecular atomic level, as easy as two letters and a number. I think that's what gospel is like. At once easy and complex, elementary and deep at the same time. That's about as much chemistry I know. So now back to parenting. I need to know a lot about that too. But as is the case with parenting in general, Spiritual parenting is more than just begetting at the beginning, right? It goes beyond evangelism to discipleship. Now, we could make Proverbs 23, 26 our model. 
It's not only about exhorting my son, give me your heart. It's also saying, and let your eyes observe my ways. That leads us from injunction to imitation. We have now the second spiritual fatherly counsel. Observe carefully commendable real-life godliness. Verse 16 builds on the two verses before it. In verse 14, the Corinthians are the beloved children of Paul. And verse 15, Paul's the spiritual father of the Corinthians. Then verse 16, the church should start looking like the apostle. That shouldn't surprise us. Even churches today often look look a lot like their founding pastors. As I was thinking this week about faith Bible churches, our unique status, our non-denominational unique identity, our mix of doctrinal convictions, Our core identity at least partially has to do with Clayton Crooks, our founding pastor, our first pastor, a very godly man. He was trained, I don't know if you knew this, but he was trained at a Presbyterian seminary. He sat under the great conservative theologian J. Gresham Mekin. But Pastor Crooks was also a premillennial dispensationalist. He chose a second-generation Baptist preacher to be his right-hand man and eventual successor. So again, we as a church often resemble the founder and they get us going in a certain trajectory, whether we realize it or not. Of course, none of them are perfect like Jesus, though they hopefully they strive to be. But we can still find qualities and doctrines to imitate in them. So that's the simple truth of verse 16. Now, what's complex and fascinating is what, is what follows verse 16. Verse 17 teaches us that imitating Paul is not limited to studies of his letters and the book of Acts, maybe. You need flesh and bones to speak and demonstrate truths. So, inter Timothy, someone Paul could trust to represent him and his ways. Through Timothy, Paul could urge the Corinthians observe carefully commendable real-life godliness. More on Timothy in a second, but I want to stop for a quick rant. And this is one reason I'm convinced, I'm convinced Paul would never wholeheartedly approve of the so-called online church. So I'm talking about a church program that's mostly dependent on web streaming. I don't doubt there are some redeemable qualities. Some features are good as supplements. I don't want to rule out such programs completely as they could help shut-ins, or maybe the underground church, those in a pandemic lockdown as we once were, if you remember. But personal discipleship very often requires a person. That's why Paul's plan of imitation in verse 16 follows with what you see later, just dispatch of Timothy and his plan to go himself. So now let's see why Timothy's the right person for the job. Here's a quick review of his background. 
the first mention of Timothy in the Bible is in Acts 16. It says there that he's the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. We never learned his father's name, but we do know his mother's name's Eunice, and grandmother's is Lois. Timothy must have been saved before Acts 16, though, back in chapter 14. He's likely among those converted during Paul's first missionary trip, specifically when the gospel reached the cities of Lycaonia. So that's how Timothy, like the Corinthians, became Paul's spiritual child. But soon, Timothy began to distinguish himself above others. He lived in Lystra, but left an impression on believers from other cities too. So no wonder during his second missionary trip or journey, Paul singled him out and recruited him to join him and Silas. Together they strengthened churches and established new ones. In these efforts, Timothy was valuable. Like the apostles, stewards of God's mysteries, Paul's spiritual son was faithful. He could be trusted to complete important tasks. And the task we see in today's passage was to remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways in Christ. Note how there was no need for special contextualization. How the apostle lived and taught was consistent wherever he went. That's why I think we can look to 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12, as a key cross-reference. You know, I'll just summarize this passage, 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12. You can look at it later. But his ways in Thessalonica set a precedent for his ways in Corinth. Everywhere he went, Paul was striving to behave devoutly, justly, and blamelessly among believers. He exhorted, comforted, and charged them. Any good father he wants was best for all the saints, that they'd walk worthy of God, who caused them into his own kingdom and glory. So while Paul lived like this and did this, um, Timothy watched, learned, and became Paul's imitator, sort of like an understudy. He did this so well that the apostle could send his spiritual son in place of him or ahead of him. And again, speaking of the Thessalonians, earlier elsewhere in Greece, when Paul heard that they were suffering, he could not go himself to them. He sent Timothy instead of him. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 3 says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Here's another passage later. While Paul was stuck in prison, he'd write the Philippians, making a similar arrangement. Philippians chapter 2, 19 to 24. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state or all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send them at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So through Timothy, Paul could urge the Corinthians to observe carefully commendable real-life godliness. So now for some applications. What are some ways to imitate Paul? 
What are some ways to be imitable like Paul, right? To imitate Paul, just read the Bible, right? Take good notes. As you study the scriptures, you're learning the ways and teachings of Paul and other apostles. As for the personal side of discipleship, you can't literally follow Paul as Timothy did. But we do have Luke's biographical accounts of him in Acts and Paul's letters where we get his doctrines. It's more than enough for us to study and imitate Paul. So dig in, think like Paul, act like Paul. So next, is it possible to not only imitate Paul, but also be imitable like Paul? So that is, can we turn around and say to someone else, I urge you, imitate me? Pretty high call if you you ask me. It's something we should be doing. Are we raising up our own Timothys? I can't speak for other churches, just for ours. Now, if you're a leader of ministries here and you feel you're getting up in the years, right? start thinking of a succession plan. Now, don't get me wrong. Older members are a blessing to the local church. They have years of experience and maturity. If retired and still healthy, there's much they can do. I hope for many more years of their fruitful work at our church. But I'm convinced a major part of that work should be identifying and preparing your successor. Right? It looks as if Paul was in his 40s, at most his 50s, when he started training up Timothy. That seems early by my standards. If I'm like 43 right now. So I have to start thinking about a Timothy? If so, what about us in our 60s and 70s? Would our positions groups and classes, ministry, cease to exist when we pass? Or would the work move forward through our spiritual children or younger believers? Start with maybe identifying one, buy them dinner or coffee, then invite them to shadow you, then gradually get them more involved in your ministry, Share your work with them. We don't have to make discipleship overly complicated. I urge you to imitate me, right? And hopefully a cycle begins and continues for many years. The goal is not replacement. It's not even addition, I would say. It's multiplication. That's what Paul envisioned in and through Timothy should be a familiar verse. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This has to be our prayer as a church. We need to become worthy examples for those new to the faith, those who are growing in their faith. We need to have people come here, commit as members, and be discipled and become disciplers themselves. Can Faith Bible Church be where one can observe carefully commendable real-life godliness? So while we pray and wait for others to join, we ask, for, we ask the Lord for growth in godliness 
We should be praying for humility. And Paul's been stressing the importance of humility for a few chapters now. He's been calling out the arrogance of the proud. He asked the Corinthians in verse 6, earlier in the same chapter, Learn in us, the apostles, not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And that leads us to the next fatherly counsel. Receive humbly those who represent God's authority. Receive humbly those who represent God's authority. So we covered the injunction and imitation. It's time for the inspection. The audit, right? As much as Paul values Timothy's work, the spiritual father must visit Corinth himself. Then he'll know firsthand whether those boasting are all talk or not. He'll know whether to have a rod in hand or pun- for punishment or stretch out his hand for an embrace. Now when Paul says in verse 20 that king, God's kingdom is not in word but in power, we have to be careful how we read that. Now this isn't saying Paul's about to get into a fist fight or something. He and the ringleaders are about to get in a ring or something. That's not what it's saying here. This is not Corinthians' real spiritual daddy versus their fake puffed daddies. No, this isn't Moses versus Janus and Jambres, right? So what is going on here, right? So what does it mean to say that the kingdom of God is not in word but in power? Well, we know verse 20 explains verse 19, so keep it in context. Also, Paul often uses the phrase kingdom of God while discussing the moral qualities of its citizens. Romans 14, 17, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, patience, faith, endurance. You can also see it from the opposite perspective. Paul lists negative qualities that are not befitting those in God's kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 6, we'll see later, and Galatians 5. So safe to say the apostles looking to inspect the character of these big talkers. This should be a familiar teaching. Jesus warned us of counterfeits. Matthew 7, 16 to 20 says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grace from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. The false teachings and empty words can deceive you, cheat you, make you worthless. Such speech may be presumptive and be of the world, not of Christ. Kingdom authority is about kingdom character. So now when those who are puffed up read or hear Paul's words at the end of 1 Corinthians 4, they should say, I don't want to see the angry side of Paul. It's like a kid with the dad, right? I'd rather see him come home from work to a clean room, chores done, homework completed. Better to receive humbly those who represent God's authority. 
Let me take this principle and apply it from two perspectives. From, first, from the perspective of those under authority, right? I challenge you to open your lives and open up your hearts to you know, authority, right? So whether that's your spiritual mentors, Christian counselors, leaders, teachers, and the elders of our church. Authorize those with God's authority. Give them permission to speak into your life. Empower those with power to keep you accountable. Willingly invite inspectors to test the quality of your spiritual food to make sure you're not all talk. So that's for those under authority. Now we take the perspective of those in authority. Please pray for leaders. Pray for me to be a good leader that I would learn to properly wield God's authority. I recall that once in my role at another small church, there was a member, he's a young professional, told me, Sung, I see you more as a friend than a pastor. And when I heard that, I was initially happy. I took pride in being a good friend to others. But but it takes more than being a good friend to be a good pastor. You have to become more of a parental figure. Could be a challenge. I mean, I'm like your kid's age, right? Many of your kid's age. I'm getting plenty of practice at home, though. I see these days that Nathaniel responds much better to my wife's firm commands and warnings. He knows that there's a nice mommy and a scary mommy. So Nathaniel needs to know there's a scary daddy, too. You know, so maybe I need to get more bass in my voice. One thing's for sure, my son doesn't need a friend. He needs a father. My daughter needs a father. My wife needs me to be a father, right? Pray for me that I become a better father, and I will probably mean that I'll become a better pastor. And one final thought, and I pray that I and other elders and others in authority, others called to be shepherds, would look to Jesus. Right? And he is the great chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. In fact, it would benefit all of us, not just the leaders, to look to Christ. He cares for us, definitely loves us, but when we lose our way, he patiently seeks us and disciplines us. And so I hope that the final song, The King of Love, My Shepherd Is, reminds us of this truth, one of the verses go like this, goes like this, perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. Let's pray and sing. Lord, we thank you that you are our Father. Lord, you sent your Son to die on the cross. You sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can call you Abba Father. Lord, we don't want to take that for granted. We want to rehearse these truths, remember it each and every day. And Lord, we see how important that is in our everyday living. 
Lord, as we take on positions of authority at church or at work, and especially at home, that we see how important it is to look to you, the perfect Father, the Father of lights. And Lord, help us, Lord, to be uh, more fatherly, be more parental, help us to set an example for others. That when we see someone going astray, they will not keep silent, but speak to them in a loving way. Lord, cause our lives to be not only just for our own benefit, to grow in our personal devotions and knowledge of your word, but so that we could influence others, have them imitate us. And Lord, we also ask that you would help us to just have true, authentic relationships where we can invite each other to look into our lives, that we will test the quality of our fruits, examine whether we are in the faith and whether we are growing in the faith. Lord, pray that we will not be satisfied with just meeting and just saying our platitudes and saying our hellos and goodbyes, but may we grow spiritually together, fulfill the Great Commission, grow in discipleship, grow in the likeness of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.